Hello, everyone. On the 12th of November 2019, at the invitation of Hartford College Principal Will Hutton, I gave the following lecture entitled Singapore, a model for post-Brexit Britain. It was a marvellous event and really well attended. Thank you to those of you who were there. Unfortunately, I pressed the wrong button on my audio recorder and so the talk was not recorded. But there has been so much interest in this talk that I've re-recorded the talk here today. I'm happy to take questions, so if you have any questions, please do email me at pingjin.thumb at newnarrative.com. Enjoy! Thank you very much, and thank you, Will. I appreciate Hartford providing safe harbour for a dissident, and it's really good to see Hartford standing up for freedom of academic inquiry and freedom of speech. Will's invited me today to speak about Singapore as a potential model for post-Brexit Britain. And I'm not going to talk about Brexit per se. I'll leave that to Will, whom I know has very strong opinions on it. But instead, I'm just going to address the persistent idea that some Brexiteers have proposed of a deregulated Singapore on Thames, a low-tax, low-spend, low-regulation UK. I'm not the first to point out that this is a really unrealistic model for Britain to adopt. But there are things that I think we can learn from Singapore. And so today, I want to explain the Singapore model how it evolved and why, and then ask what we can learn from it. And I'm framing this talk in terms of Singapore's economic trajectory. When people talk about Singapore's success, they are often referring to Singapore's economic success. And I assume this is what people are most interested in when they talk about the Singapore model. But Singapore's economic success is inextricable from its social and political history, and we especially need to understand the role of state and foreign capital about domestic political competition and their impact on economic strategy. So, to start with, before 1959, Singapore grew as an entrepôt under British colonial rule. This is, it was based largely on a model of colonial exploitation and capital extraction. So by 1959, what we see is around 70-75% of the labour force involved in the trade and services sectors, which generated about 80% of Singapore's income. Manufacturing was about 5-10% of national income and also employed about 10-15% of the workforce. But what we need to dismiss at this time is any idea that Singapore was a poor country. By 1930, and again by 1950, Singapore was the richest country in Asia by per capita income. Singapore was the most important commercial, transportation and communication centre in the Far East, the biggest market in the world for natural rubber and tin, a specialised commodities futures market, and a major world oil distribution centre. And this rich wealthy metropolis had a per capita income of about $1,200 million per month. This was higher than any other country in Asia and second only to metropolitan Tokyo, which is a city, not a country. But this was because of a colonial economy. It depended heavily on economic exploitation. So even as Singapore was really rich, it was also really unequal. In 1957, for example, 25% of Singaporeans, that's over 360,000 people, were officially defined as living in poverty. For a family of four, the poverty line was about $100 million per month. 
get the modal, the most common, and the median, the middle number, wage of male workers in regular employment was also about $100 billion per month. As compared to Singapore's mean, the average wage of $1,200 per month. So this is an indication of the kind of inequality we're seeing where the mean is 12 times the modal and median income, which is also roughly around the poverty line. And at the same time, of course, there was no poverty, uh, sorry, there was no workers' rights. There was deep systemic discrimination, including the infamous color bar where you couldn't work in senior government positions unless you were of pure European blood. So you can imagine for poor Singaporeans living in squalor amid such wealth and technological advancement, the first chance they got, they elected left-wing socialist parties to tackle all of this, change all of this, first in 1955 and then again in 1959. So one reason why we think of Singapore as a success is the vast expansion of social welfare spending and interventions by the government into society with the aim of ending discrimination and redistributing income in a fairer way. This was begun under the Labour Front government in 1955, which implemented a new pension scheme called the Central Provident Fund, or CPF. They abolished the old inefficient and corrupt system of public housing and established a new public housing body, the Housing and Development Board, or HDB, and also began the process of reforming education. And these initiatives were driven by domestic political competition, where the left-wing parties sought to outbid each other on the social welfare benefits they would introduce for the population at large. Now, at the same time, we suffered from high unemployment, and so there was strong demand for, for industrialization. There was strong demand both domestically and internationally to address this. Domestically, obviously, because we have high, high unemployment and people want jobs. But internationally, well, British capital, right, also wanted development to improve their profitability, but were faced with a problem of strong nationalist movements throughout the empire, including Singapore, strong anti-colonial movements which opposed British capital continuing to exploit workers. So to protect their economic, political and strategic interests, and by they I mean the British, Singapore's anti-colonial movement had to be contained. But the demands for independence, for self-determination, could not be resisted. So what do you do? Well, the British followed a strategy in which, um, and in, throughout most of the empire, right, in which uh, they would seek a local collaborator with whom they could hand power and share profits, while allowing the British to relinquish political accountability for domestic social control. So they found that collaborator in the People's Action Party, the PAP, and in its leader, Lee Kuan Yew. And the economic form of that alliance between the PAP and international capital was basically import substitution industrialization, and this began from around 1959. Central to this strategy were reunification of Malaya and the formation of a common market. Under import substitution industrialization, foreign capital could retain its interest after independence and continue to benefit from the acquisition of raw materials and also from the provision of technology and credit. And in return, the local collaborators, the Malay aristocracy, Chinese capitalists, politicians in the Federation of Malaya and Singapore, 
would hold power with their support and receive a share of their profits from local production. Politically, this strategy was justified by the rhetoric of economic nationalism and nation-building. In Singapore, the PAP was advantaged by the lack of a strong domestic capitalist class to oppose them, but disadvantaged by their own reliance on the trade union movement as their political base. But the PAP overcame this in a variety of ways, but chiefly by seeking to extend and expand the role of the state while consolidating power within the cabinet. And they were able to justify the vast and rapid expansion of the state in the context of the massive social changes required for nation-building and the removal of the old colonial social order. And there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. This was a colonial society. So, you know, there were very obvious things they could easily change. And early successes at making these social changes brought goodwill which made the population initially tolerant of the PAP's interventions into society. But the PAP were new in power and very inexperienced, and they made a lot of mistakes at the same time. And they angered a lot of people. And so to keep themselves in power, the PAP also eliminated Singapore's political opposition using detention without trial and banishment in collaboration with the British and the Federation of Malaya. Despite wiping out nearly the entire political opposition, the PAP won the 1963 elections by the skin of their teeth, only 43% of the vote, but over 60% of the seats thanks to the first-past-the-post system. So in a nutshell, from the outset, you have a socialist government at a time where people wanted to refashion Singapore identity and discard the past. A socialist government which is empowered to make very deep interventions into society. We're not just talking about reforming institutions. We're talking about reforming the nature of society and identity itself. Fundamental transformations of a scale that I think no government would dare attempt today. But this was decolonization and it was part of the zeitgeist of the 1950s and 60s in the post-colonial world. And to achieve these interventions, you have a government which heavily expands the state's reach into society while consolidating state power within the cabinet. So it's from this time you see the term quote-unquote PAP state appear. You also have a state which is very open to foreign funding which cements an alliance between foreign capital to create jobs and economic growth via industrialization and their local collaborators, local politicians. The PAP government massively expands welfare spending and aggressively seeks to end discrimination and reform society. But they also make mistakes, and the rapid and aggressive nature of the changes also angers a lot of people. So the PAP then uses its power to eliminate political opposition to their rule. And this lays down the basic template for Singapore in the next 20 years, and indeed, till today. From 1965, Following the failure of reunification with Malaya, the PAP takes Singapore out of Malaysia but uses this opportunity to articulate a new form of identity and launch a new wave of social building alongside a new economic policy. Now, by this time, the PAP had a firm grip on parliament. By 1968, the last opposition politicians had been ejected from parliament or arrested or simply lost their seats in the 1968 boycott. And this ushered in 23 years of total PAP control of government. They were well underway towards undermining organised labour in Singapore through legislation, 
but also arresting trade union leaders who refused to cooperate with the nation-building project. There was never a large local capitalist class to begin with, and these capitalists showed an annoying tendency to oppose the PAP anyway, so the PAP were happy to sideline them. The transitory nature of import substitution industrialization, which was only about 59 to 65, meant that the PAP never had to contend with a large entrenched capitalist class. There was no time for them to build up. Unlike the other Asian newly industrializing countries, the Asian tigers, as we call them today, and others. And this sets the stage for an alliance with international capital through which the PAP can undermine the interests of both its own workers and its own capitalists. Now, at this time also, we see that international capital, especially in the USA, wants to increase its overseas direct investment to avoid domestic limits on profitability, while also seeking to avoid replicating the problems of the past where direct investment led to direct control, led to colonization. And this is also a period where many former colonies are very wary of foreign capital due to the fears of neocolonialism, right? As Nkrumah articulated it, where you give up political control, but because you control the economy of a, col- a former colony, you still have uh, de facto colonial power. So there's a conjunction between the PAP's need to maintain political ascendancy by finding a new path to industrial development with the need of political capital to identify sites for investment and profit. And this became the new strategy of export-oriented industrialization from roughly 1965 to 1978. Having developed the corporatist state to overcome its political rivals, the PAP state is now able to exercise this power to achieve the social and economic goals of this alliance with foreign capital. And the formation of a disciplined workforce is the highest priority. Or you might say a docile workforce. Which, and this goes hand in hand with the PAP's desire for political dominance. So in this period, we see the consolidation of the party state and its ideology, the introduction of repressive labour laws, and the final destruction of autonomous unions, and the further manipulation of the political process and the silencing of the press and educational institutions. So some examples. Strikes right, are outlawed, basically, fundamentally outlawed in 1967. And the trade union movement was fully co-opted by the PAP state. So the Secretary General of the National Trades Unions Congress is a cabinet post. And the current Secretary General of NTUC also happens to be the Minister of Education. So the equivalent in the UK would be, instead of Len McCluskey, by law, the head of Unite, had to be Gavin Williamson or even Michael Gove. The Employment Act and Industrial Relations Act 1968 removed worker protections, which had only been introduced a decade before under the previous Labour Front and PAP governments. The Vandalism Act 1968 criminalised the public communication of information under the guise of tackling vandalism. It's a very interesting law. If you look at it closely, right? vandalism is supposed to be about damaging property. But the law not only criminalizes damaging property, it criminalizes the public communication of information. So even if you don't damage any property, you are still liable under the vandalism law. And as we have seen recently, Jolovan Wam putting up a sign in the MRT caused zero damage, but was prosecuted. And I, I think he's appealing 
he was found guilty, but he's appealing under the Vandalism Act because it criminalizes the public communication of information. The Newspaper and Printing Presses Act 1974 consolidated all print and broadcast media under the ownership of two government-controlled entities. So what we have here overall is that the only legitimate avenues for conducting politics are those expressly approved and controlled by the PAP. And what we see over time is that all political expression becomes illegal in Singapore so that the PAP state can always arrest you for simply exercising your rights to express your political views. So in recent years, infamously under the Public Order Act uh, 2009, um, an illegal assembly is one person. An illegal procession is one person. Since 2019, a minister can simply declare any communication to be fake news. Under the Films Act, any film with political content is illegal. And of course, the definition of political is at the discretion of officials. So the government can literally arrest you for walking down the street, for sending a WhatsApp to your friend, or watching a movie on YouTube. And you may laugh, but we know people who have gone to jail under these laws. And what it does is it creates a chilling effect. It scares people so that people self-censor, so that the PAP government doesn't need to take action. People are just too afraid to express themselves to begin with. Anyway, so back to the economy. Now, in contrast to the other Asian tigers, export-oriented industrialization is undertaken in this period almost exclusively through the inflow of direct foreign investment, foreign funding. So there's no development of a local capitalist class to defend their interests and defend the interests of Singapore. But this strategy does work spectacularly well and really quickly. And so by the end of 1978, foreign investment accounts for 78.5% of total gross fixed assets in manufacturing. In the late 70s, wholly owned foreign companies produce over half of all manufactured exports. Companies with a majority of foreign ownership produce 87.4%. So Singapore was attractive for foreign investment because social control by a strong state produced a very disciplined or docile, as we might say, labor force and a guaranteed political stability. The combination of infrastructure and discipline, low-wage labor, meant that foreign capital could achieve really high levels of profit. It was more technically, technologically advanced relative to other potential markets. This was Singapore's huge competitive advantage. We had infrastructure, we had technological know-how, and we were cheap. And from Singapore, companies could also use us as a staging ground for penetrating surrounding economies which is a natural extension of our colonial role servicing the commodity trade. And I think it's also really important to note that throughout this period, our security was underwritten by our alliances, first with the UK and then with the USA. In fact, the major point of contention in Singapore, especially by the opposition, of course, was Singapore's material support for the US involvement in Vietnam and allowing US troops to spend shore leave in Singapore. So in this period, the PAP is able to reshape Singapore's social structure in pursuit of its political and economic goals, enabling it to conclude an alliance with international capital on terms extremely unfavorable to local capitalists and workers. Singapore correspondingly sees spectacular growth 
but not driven by Singaporean companies. It is driven by foreign companies in Singapore who were attracted by the incredibly attractive incentives offered by the PAP government. But this also reveals the balance of power here. The PAP has to offer these incentives because it is in a weak negotiating position. If it doesn't offer these incentives, well, it has no strong local industrial capitalist class to fall back on. And what happens when you try to unilaterally change the terms of this alliance? Well, that's what happened in the next period from around 1979 onwards. See, by this time, Singapore had well and truly solved its unemployment problem. In 1978, it actually faced a labour shortage for the first time. And at the same time, we faced increased competition from the other Asian tigers. We had a strong Singapore dollar, high per, per capita income. We were a victim of our own success and all the obvious low-hanging fruit had been plucked. And the PAP leaders, they're very smart men. They see the writing on the wall. They decide to move Singapore up the value chain from low-wage, labour-intensive manufacturing to capital-intensive, higher-value-added manufacturing. They called this strategy Singapore's Second Industrial Revolution. To do it, they impose mandatory higher wages, provided incentives for high-technology industrial capital, and intensified their domestic control. They also reduced social spending. And they sold this to the people as Singapore moving into a new stage of our development. Our initial nation-building period is done. We are now a high-income country. We're going to rise to the top. So you see the PAP move at this point from the language of social justice to a new rhetoric and a new national narrative based on meritocracy and social Darwinism. And it was a huge failure. Without the profitability, capital simply left. By 1985, there was a massive recession. GDP growth plummeted by 10% in a year. Labour costs had risen by 40% since 1980. There was hardly any technological upgrading. There was a 40% decline in investment and collapsing demand for Singapore's manufactured goods. What limited success the second industrial revolution achieved arose from the Singapore state's capacity to direct foreign, sorry, to direct domestic resources in support of foreign investment. Now, one problem was a lack of advanced technological know-how. For this, it's not enough to be relatively advanced, i.e. just more advanced than your competitors. You need to be absolutely advanced, as advanced as the best. But the labour force was not sufficiently skilled. There was a lack of technological expertise. So they were not sufficiently skilled to support the technologically advanced economy that the PAP government wanted to create. The PAP state was forced to recognise that technological innovation cannot simply be brought into being through legislation. There's a whole broader ecosystem that needs to be created. You need to develop social capital, intellectual capital. And technological advancement is not something easily or willingly shared by those who have it. So the PAP state here embarks on a crash program to upgrade the level of education in Singapore, and it fundamentally and drastically changes how education is conducted. Within one generation, we're going to create the technologically advanced workforce we need. And to achieve this here, it veers into really crazy experiments into social engineering, eugenics, it actually sets up a national eugenics board, 
and intervening into children's lives from the womb to try and create, within a generation, a hyper-educated and skilled Singaporean workforce. We're talking IQ tests, the streaming or tracking of children from the age of nine into streams which are highly determinative of their future prospects, and even the sterilization of women with quote-unquote inferior genes. And how do you measure that? They tried to apply quote-unquote objective measures, and of course it ended up being poor and minority women who subjected themselves to the sterilization. This issue itself on education and you know the trying to uh, create this idealized society could be an entire lecture, right? So we won't go into too much detail here, but um, it's a bad episode for Singapore. And the PAP can do this because who says no to the PAP by this point? Now, economically, there's a lot of analysis about the failure of the second industrial revolution, which I can't go into because it would take too long. I'm not an economist and I'm here to talk about the political aspects of this and its consequences. In political terms, this state-sponsored revolution foundered because the PAP tried to unilaterally alter the terms of its alliance with foreign capital. It's a political move to extract better terms from your partners. And the problem is, you can't shed your low-wage intermediate technological role using legislation and regulation. You just can't. And Singapore has no leverage to try and get a better negotiating position. It's not China, which has the world's largest market. Singapore is, is nothing, right? <laughs> We're, you know, at this point, just several million, three million, three and a half million people. And so Singapore, like the other Asian tigers, found that advanced capitalist countries were not willing to share technology. These countries had their own protectionist pressures and capital would simply move to somewhere else with greater profitability. And this failure put the PAP's domestic hegemony at risk. So, to reiterate here, it's not just economic failure. There's the controversial education reforms, the slashing of subsidies to housing and healthcare and other welfare spending, and all this led to great unhappiness. And in 1981, Singaporeans elected our first opposition member of parliament since 1968, J.B. Jayaratnam, and then a second opposition member of parliament in 1984, Chamsi Tong. And this period really shows just how much Singaporeans were willing to tolerate the PAP's authoritarianism only as long as it was delivering on its development strategy. They sent a clear message, we only tolerate this as long as you deliver. So how did the PAP respond? Well, the PAP government's response was to abandon the second industrial revolution and return to a low-wage export production model. Through wage freezes, changes to the tax code, but also cutting employer contributions to pension funds. This last one might need some explanation. You know, your CPF, your pension fund, is made of two main components. Your contribution, which has been as high as 40-50% of your salary, and your employer's contribution. So your contribution is forcibly taken from your salary every month, and your employer's contribution likewise is taken from your employer. This means by reducing the employer contribution, the government can impose a wage cut on the whole country and correspondingly increase business profitability simply by cutting employers' contributions. And you don't see this on a daily basis, right? Because it's not part of your salary per se, so it's, it's no different to what you're seeing. So while we're on the subject of pension funds, from 1987, you could no longer withdraw the entirety of your pension upon retirement. 
Instead, you're limited in how much you can withdraw, and then you have to reach a minimum sum before you can start withdrawing, and then they impose insurance schemes, and so on and so forth. It's really complicated. But the point here is, your CPF is no longer your pension because you're no longer guaranteed to get all the money back. It's effectively a tax, which is partly returned to you through direct and indirect welfare and subsidies. Sometimes all of it is returned to you, and sometimes not all of it is returned to you. But because you don't have control and it's no longer guaranteed that it's your money, it's effectively a tax, not a pension. So when people talk about Singapore having low income tax, it's simply not true because the CPF is a tax in all but name, which means that Singaporean income taxes start at around 50% of income. But back to the economy. So the PAP has been very careful to make unit labour costs remain lower than similar economies like Taiwan and South Korea. And one way of doing so is immigration, especially of low-cost foreign labour who are exempted from the laws, what few laws we still have, regulating labour and wages. Singapore has 5.9 million people, but only 3.5 million citizens. We have around a million low-wage labourers who are paid as little as $10-$20 a day in a country where the government itself considers you extremely poor if you make twice that. But it also, the PAP also recognised the limits of this low-wage strategy because there are also there are always going to be cheaper places to move your capital to. So the PAP introduced a new component, trying to make Singapore itself positioned to maximise returns on capital by investing in developing economies and emerging competitors. This would be led by Singaporean government-owned or controlled companies. So Singapore would invest in advanced industrialised economies to gain access to technology and skilled labour. This would also allow it to then gain a share of the returns on its capital where the returns are distributed. Singapore would also invest in regional economies as a way to facilitate the penetration of those companies by advanced industrialised countries. So Singapore is really returning and embracing its colonial role as a regional hub. So as with the colonial era, we developed a highly sophisticated services sector with financial and banking infrastructure, transport, communication services, all to facilitate the operations of trans-regional corporations. The main difference is that in the colonial period, it was trade and commerce that formed the biggest part of our services sector. From the 1980s, it was financial and business services. We also developed our role as a major offshore financial centre. And this is the fundamental model that we still follow today, 30 years later. Today, based on the latest numbers that I could find, Singapore GDP, about 45% comes from foreign-owned companies. 25% comes from government-linked companies. And only around a third is local. This is crucial, right? Singapore cannot survive without foreign funding, cannot survive without this direct foreign investment. So the PAP has to bend over backwards to accommodate foreign funding. This is where Singapore's low-tax, low-regulation reputation comes from. For foreign companies, and indeed for foreigners, their employees, Singapore is very low-tax and low-regulation. And Singapore also remains low-wage. So that's how Singapore competes. I guess it's ironic that a lot of this describes the UK's role in Europe before Brexit. But people talk about the Singapore model as for something after Brexit. 
But I guess the big difference is that Singapore's model is heavily state-directed via the two sovereign wealth funds, Tamasic and the Government of Singapore Investment Corporation, or GIC. Singapore doesn't have a strong local capitalist class, so the government itself plays the role of local capital. Now, this slashing and subsequent suppression of wages to maintain competitiveness has caused a lot of unhappiness. So from the 1980s, the PAP sharply cracked down on dissent and increased domestic control to ensure that public dissent could not touch them again, including by changing the electoral system to one which was unfair, but also to make sure that the outcome of the elections makes no difference as long as the PAP wins 50% of the seats plus one. So to achieve this, we have gerrymandering, malapportionment, we have constituencies electing groups of MPs rather than just one MP, we have the return of nominated MPs to allow the PAP to have carefully curated opposition voices, every election is now a snap election, we have the introduction of racial components which allow for manipulation, most recently seen in the presidential election, so, again, Singapore's electoral system could be a whole lecture. Singapore's elections are very, very unfair. But there's one component in particular that I want to touch on, and that's town councils. See, prior to 1984, public services were provided by a single body. But town councils were created so that public services are provided on a constituency-by-constituency -constituency basis. And the government at the time openly stated that this was a mechanism to punish people who elect opposition MPs. They didn't even pretend that it wasn't. So they said, if you elect opposition MPs, you'll get punished, basically. And opposition MPs then have to manage the town councils, right, on a day-to-day -day basis. But here's the crucial thing. The PAP government still controls the money. It's like the old colonial practice. The opposition MPs have the accountability, the responsibility, but none of the real control. Without money, you can't do a thing. And it's the government which controls the money and disburses money for maintenance and upgrading through its ministries and government-controlled statutory bodies, which means it can deny or delay funding to town councils for a wide variety of reasons. So voters in opposition-held wards, like Potong Pasir previously, Haukang and Aljunit, have suffered, and they know why. Now, this is also part of a broader pattern of shifting accountability for political decisions to appointed bodies in the guise of technocracy. So political decisions are presented as being the decisions of statutory bodies, regulatory bodies, security services, and so on, not of the elected politician. Right? And this allows them to avoid and evade accountability by saying, oh, it's the professionals, the experts that we appointed who made this decision. But of course, they're still happy to take credit. But there's another really important mechanism of control that has been increasingly used, and that is debt, and specifically debt to the government. In the 1990s, there was a shift towards market-based models of pricing for determining welfare subsidies. For example, the HDB shifted from a cost-based plus a premium pricing model to a market-based minus a discount pricing model and in the same period, land prices rose significantly. Housing costs have thus risen correspondingly. Likewise, in 1986, CPF interest rates were pegged to bank interest rates, and so since then, before 1986, they were around 5.5-6%. They've sunk 
as low as 2.5%, but it's between 2.5-4%. Healthcare costs are also carefully controlled by the government and means-tested, but not in terms of income, but more in general terms of how dependent you are, already are, on the government. So if you live in private housing, or you have access to family support, then the government insists you sell your home or depend on your family first before the government. This then drives people deeper into government control, creating a vicious cycle of dependence. This control is paramount and is the basis for the Singapore model today. So in Singapore, the PAP government controls wages. And all Singapore is in wage labour. You can't live off the land or function in a pure cash economy in Singapore. The government controls the labour supply and tightly regulates migrant labour so it can basically turn it on and off like a tap on a yearly basis, right? As passes are renewable every year. The government controls welfare, particularly housing and healthcare. It controls the cost of living, especially housing. We have the most expensive cars in the world. We have very regressive tax system. The government directly houses 85% of the people in Singapore. It can control rents because it directly and indirectly controls 85% of the land in Singapore. It controls 100% of your savings via the CPF, which as I've mentioned is a de facto tax. All interactions with the government require your identity card number. And we don't have the right to privacy. The government is exempted from privacy laws, from a lot of laws actually. And we can't do a thing about it. Because the only permissible form of genuine protest is the vote, which is heavily unfair and where you get punished if you vote the wrong way. So my point is that with all these levers, it is able to control the population to a very intimate degree to achieve the outcomes that we praise Singapore for. If the government did not force Singaporeans to live the way we live, it's almost certainly true that we would not choose it for ourselves. I mean, today poverty in Singapore in general, defined as an income lower than the minimum cost of living is around 30 to 40% according to independent studies. It's higher than the colonial period. But the bigger problem here is also we don't know because we have problems putting exact figures on, on all these issues because Singapore has no freedom of information. So we simply don't know. By law, everything in Singapore is a state secret unless specifically declassified. So it's impossible to say a lot of things about Singapore. And a lot of the facts and figures that we routinely cite about Singapore, well, they come from the Singapore government, right? Even if they come from a third party like, say, the World Bank, where does the World Bank get its numbers from? From the Singapore government. So you ask questions like, well, is there corruption? And, you know, the problem is we don't know. There have been, there certainly have been high-profile corruption cases in recent years. You ask, are Singaporeans actually well off? Are Singaporeans happy? We can't reliably discuss or improve or prove anything because all the information about Singapore comes from the government, so you can't do independent studies properly. So this is the Singapore model. What is the applicability to Britain? Well, obviously there's a lot of negatives. Specifically, I hope I've addressed the whole low tax, low spend, low regulation idea. I think... The most important lesson is that you need to be clear-eyed about capital. It will go where there is maximum profitability. And unless you have leverage or are backed up by a strong local capitalist class, it will simply leave. The PAP made this mistake and has not been able to figure a way out of this. 
And today, us workers are really squeezed as a result. Singapore's basically a bucket that other people fill. And the world loves Singapore because we have to bend over backwards to accommodate other people because we have no way to stand up for ourselves. And we do whatever other people want us to do. But I do want to focus on one really important positive thing about Singapore, which I think Britain can learn. And that's to do with identity and vision. We live in the age of nationalism and more broadly of identity, where I think research has shown that how you identify yourself determines your response to a situation more than the objective facts of the situation. And one thing which Lee Kuan Yew and his team did very well was to conceive of a strong vision for where they wanted Singapore to go. And then they articulated a narrative that supported that vision. Now, this narrative changed a lot depending on circumstances, right? Sometimes totally divorced from reality, but it doesn't matter. You know, because what it, it did was it, it had a very strong vision of where it wanted to go. And then it also took advantage of circumstances to adapt its narrative in pursuit of that vision and crafted a compelling narrative to support it. So the PAP's articulations of national identity have never really been about reflecting any sort of truth, but rather about creating a narrative basis to justify their vision for Singapore's future. Whether you agree with the vision is another thing, because I think we all recognize that Especially in the 80s, the PAP's vision went really far off the rails, especially with the eugenics. But this articulation of a vision, of goals, is really important. It's something they are no longer doing well today. I mean, the current government can't really articulate exactly where Singapore is going. It can only say, maintain the status quo. But the PAP of the 60s and 70s, what I call the peak PAP, did this really well. And I think in the Brexit debate, this is what's missing. What is your vision for Britain? It's only after you articulate a goal of where you want the UK to go, then you can argue about how best to achieve that, how best to get there. And then it may be that Brexit is a necessary step towards achieving that vision. And so you have Brexit or vice versa. So in this light, the, the answer to why Brexit shouldn't be because, oh, well, there was a referendum. The answer should be, well, what is your vision for Britain? What is British identity? What is Britain's future? Then you decide how to get there, and if Brexit enables that, then you have Brexit, and vice versa. And I've not seen any proper debate about the future of Britain, let alone how Brexit fits into that. The PAP government, the peak PAP under Lee Kuan Yew, always knew where it wanted to go, even if it was batshit crazy. They put a huge amount of effort into propaganda, into education, all to frame a certain perspective of history and to educate children to share the values of the PAP government because it recognized the value of the narrative in supporting this vision. Now, I'm not saying you should go that far and engage propaganda and change the whole educational system, but you have to figure out where you want to go first. Otherwise, any road will take you. Thank you very much. And that's my lecture. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please do email me at pingjin.thumb at newnarrative.com or send us a message on Facebook or tweet at us on Twitter at newnarrative. Be sure to tune in to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. 
Subscription started just $52 US a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead.